For three months, I have been preaching into a camera. I guess I still am, hello, but uh, preaching into a camera and with about three or four people, two of whom are usually really focused on technology, and once in a while, Elisa or somebody would kind of like nod and look at me like, okay, that was really weird at first, eventually got used to it, but uh, here we are, so great to be back together, and uh, I don't know about you, and it's hard to even weigh how people are reacting when you're preaching into a camera, right, it's a little bit difficult, but uh, you may recall some of you that were here last year as we walked through the book of Isaiah, it started in January, it took us all the way through August uh, that year as well, and I was astonished, even though I'd preached and teached Isaiah before, that it just began to grow on us. I feel like Jeremiah, the same thing has happened. I've never preached through Jeremiah before. I've taught it at North Central, uh, but as you preach through something and you really see the implications, I'll be honest, I've said this before, I always see more preparing to preach the word and so thank you for the privilege because I feel like I understand this book more. And this, is a, this passage particularly today is fascinating because it is far more relevant than I ever realized. So just to, to start thinking about what we're going to talk about today, you can turn toward Jeremiah 35. But uh, when you think about the church today or even the church historically You've always got, you know, the gospel is, establishes the church. The kingdom of God establishes the church. And the church is always in some specific culture, right? It's not, uh, it's sort of like a an, slight analogy to the incarnation. The gospel doesn't exist, in, you know, uh, in disembodied form, shall we say, right? It's always embodied in some culture. And so how does the church respond to culture? What are some of the different ways the church responds to culture today or historically? Help me out here. What, what is, yeah, Brendan. Okay, conformity is one big one, right? Okay, yeah. Be a little louder. Rejection of culture, yeah. Yeah, okay. Any other responses? What's that? See, he's, he properly has his mask on, so I can't hear him. What? Right. Creating culture, yes. Creating a subculture, yeah. That happens, yeah, yeah, right. I didn't think of that one in my sermon, but yeah, okay, well, yeah. So, yeah, you got about two-thirds of the sermons done, so that's great. All right, we got it, right? But let's, uh, let's look at it here. The bottom, the, the kind of the, the initiating issue is that God calls us to be holy <clears throat> as he is holy, but we always live that out within a culture. So how does that look like and how will we respond? So on the one hand, uh, some of you mentioned the kind of the isolating from cultures. We might call that the Amish response, right? Let's, let's create a subculture and... Uh, it's sort of like what Josh is saying too, right? It's kind of created almost an entire, you're kind of on the fringes of the culture, right? You're there, but you're very uninvolved. Or you could be the kind of the Martin Luther King response. Dive into the middle of culture, try to change it, right? Uh, Rob Bell, do you know who he is? Okay, he'd be an example of conformity to culture eventually. So there's several responses to God's holiness. Interestingly, the first response to God's holiness is rejection of culture. 
So let's read Jeremiah 35. We'll read the first 11 verses, which as I know quite a few, but it'll give you the context, the feel. It's a story, all right? So here it is. Uh, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. Okay? So obviously, Jeremiah is not a fundamentalist. Okay, so, all right. So I went to get Jaazaniah, son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brothers and all his sons, the whole family of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of Igdaliah, the man of God. It was next to the room of the officials, which was over that of Maseah, son of Shalom, the drug keeper. Okay, there's that deep deal. Anyway, here we go. Verse five. Then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the men of the Rechabite family and said to them, drink some wine. But they replied, we do not drink wine. Because our forefather Jonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Also, you must never build houses, sow seed, or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time in the land where you are nomads. Okay, that's what they were commanded. So what is, how they respond? Verse 8, we have obeyed everything our forefather Rechab, our Jonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. Neither we nor our wives nor our sons and daughters have ever drunk wine or built houses to live in or had vineyards, fields, or crops. We've lived in tents and have fully obeyed everything our forefather Jonadab commanded us. Okay, well, then why are they in Jerusalem? Verse 11 explains. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded this land, we said, come, we must go to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonian and Aramean armies who so we've remained in Jerusalem. They're explaining why they're living in the city right now. All right, so there it is. Let's pray, and we're going to dive in. So, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would open up our hearts, but especially our souls, our spirit, to your scripture this morning that you would break up attitudes we've had toward different groups of people. We'd recognize the significance of every choice with respect to culture, which are dangerous and some are not. Give us your insight and help us to know how we should respond as Sojourn Campus Church to our culture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So they had this response and it's a little odd, right? Not only no wine, but no crops. What's going on? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. In fact, we'll read it. It's a little bit more like a Bible study this morning, but you'll, you'll be okay. All right, look at 2 Kings 10, verse 15. What's happened is, verse 15, we're gonna pick up the story. Yehu has been commissioned by God to get the idolatry out of northern Israel. He's taken a pretty bloody approach, frankly, and it was somewhat devastating. We pick it up in verse 15. After he left there, he came upon, guess who? Jonadab, son of Rechab, who was on his way to meet him. Yehu greeted him and said, are you in accord with me as I am with you? I am, Jonadab answered. If so, said Yehu, give me your hand. So he did, and Yehu helped him up into the chariot. Yehu said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Then he had him ride along in his chariot. 
When Yehu came to Samaria, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. Ahab was the guy that intermarried with, the, with the, that little princess Jezebel, right? Uh, and uh, brought idolatry to Israel. He destroyed them according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Then Yehu brought all the people together and said to them, now he's being tricky here, Ahab served Baal a little, Yehu will serve him much. Now summon all of the prophets of Baal, all his ministers and all his priests. See that no one is missing because I'm going to hold a great sacrifice to Baal. Anyone who fails to come will no longer live. But Yehu was acting deceptively in order to destroy the ministers of Baal. Yehu said, call an assembly in honor of Baal. So they proclaimed it. Then he sent word throughout Israel and all the ministers of Baal came. Not one stayed away. They crowded into the temple of Baal until it was full from one end to the other. And Yehu said to the keeper of the wardrobe, bring robes for all the ministers of Baal. So they brought him out robes. Then Yehu and Jonadab sent a record, went into the temple of Baal. Yehu said to the ministers of Baal, look around, see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, only ministers of Baal. So they went in to make sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Yehu had posted 80 men outside with this warning. If one of you lets any of the men I'm placing into your hands escape, it'll be your life for his life. Well, as soon as Yehu had finished making the burnt offering, he ordered the guards and officers, go in and kill them. Let no one escape. And they killed every single prophet of Baal. He and Jonadab. What does that tell you about Jonadab? Well, he was against Baal worship. <laughs> it's pretty clear, all right? But what did Baal, what's Baal worship about? Where are my Bible scholars? Who was Baal? Huh? God of rain, the guy, the god of the storms, right? Kind of a Middle Eastern Thor, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And if you worship Baal, he promised you fertility in your children, your animals, and your crops, and your grapes. So Jonadab, not only are they not going to drink, and they used wine to kind of get a little bit loopy in their rituals, right? So, okay. So, not only are they not going to drink wine, they're not going to do anything associated with the prophets of Baal, right? Not just avoid the wine. They're not going to, you're going to never live a sedentary lifestyle, the agricultural lifestyle, no way, because you might be tempted to Baal worship, right? So, you see what he's doing as a good fundamentalist? He's saying, let's not only avoid the sin, let's, let's just get as far as we can from even the culture that supports the sin. See what he's doing? So, not only no wine, but no crops, nothing. Be, be nomads, Bedouin nomads, uh, and, uh, you know, raise goats and sheep. So, no wine drinking, because the grapes were agricultural, and wine was used in Baal worship, but not even any sedentary lifestyle. No building of homes. They have to live as nomads, and they have been faithful to this. So the point here, Jonadab, like many throughout Jewish and church history, responds to the decadence of the surrounding culture by rejecting as much of the culture as possible. Living in isolation, creating a subculture on the outskirts of the culture. That's exactly what he's doing. So in our day, Amish are an extreme example, some Amish, rejecting all technology after the 1800s, right? No electricity, no gas engines. But really, many fundamentalist leaning groups have been culture rejecting to different degrees, sometimes clothing styles, uh, sometimes musical styles, right? 
you know, jazzes of the devil, right? And then later, rock and rolls of the devil, and then later, heavy metals of the devil, and later, uh, what's the one where they kind of sound scratchy, breathy? <laughs> that one? Anyway, you know what I mean? That's of the devil. You know, so, yeah. Uh, what do they call that? What? Yeah, 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 yeah. Ian likes it, you know. They got this, yeah. yeah. Ian's got a lot of Christian screamo, and so does Nicole. You know them. Anyway, okay, so, uh, so you know where I stand on culture. All right, so anyway, um, they, you know, Sometimes it's, you know, we joke about don't smoke, drink, chew, or kiss the girls who do, right? Kind of, you know, teasing our great-grandparents' generation. But the idea is that uh, stay away from culture because culture is dangerous. Guess what? They're right that culture is dangerous. You know, there's aspects of culture that are dangerous. So what's intriguing here, what does God think of these fundamentalists? Read verses 18 and 19 from this chapter. Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. You've obeyed the command of your forefather Jonadab and have followed all of his instructions, done everything he ordered. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Jonadab, son of Rechab, will never fail to have a man to serve me. Now, isn't Jeremiah's response and God's response interesting? He doesn't say that all of Israel needs to be Rechabites. He's not telling them that's the only way to go, but he recognizes their impulse. And he says, God will bless this impulse to stay pure using this method. Unlike many of us who are evangelical will tend to look down on a fundamentalist, God's saying, no, you're trying to do the right thing. So even though he doesn't call all Judah to that response, he respects that response and says, I will bless you because of it. Very interesting, isn't it? So how does this help us? It reminds us that God respects fundamentalists. <laughs> Sometimes it's good to remember, right? Without affirming it as a necessary response, nonetheless, God and Jeremiah affirm their faithfulness. Here's the, here's the thing I want you to remember. If you've got to choose between the two, faithfulness trumps relevance. Oh, what did I just say? I know, university, church, and in general, we do attempt to be relevant. But if it's a choice between the two, you, you, you better be faithful. You better be faithful. So the first response to God's holiness is rejection of culture. There's another response to God's holiness. The second response is compromise with culture. So now we read the middle part we skip, verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, go tell the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, will you not learn a lesson and obey my words, declares the Lord? Jonadab, son of Rechab, here's a guy, this is a human being, ordered his sons not to drink wine, and this command has been kept for generations. I'm adding that, okay. To this day, they do not drink wine because they obey their forefather's command. But I, I as God here, I have spoken to you again and again, yet you've not obeyed me. Again and again, I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you will live in the land I've given you and your fathers. But you've not paid attention or listened to me. The descendants of Jonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command of their forefathers gave them. But these people have not obeyed me. So you understand what's going on now, right? The Rechabites are an illustrated sermon for Jeremiah. You know, these guys got some pretty rough, pretty demanding commands from their forefather, a human being, and they did it. 
Judah has commands from God himself, and they haven't done it. By the way, verse 1, I read it earlier. It says, we're in the reign of Jehoiakim. Kings and Chronicles tell us he did evil. We won't read it. Jeremiah tells us, I'll just tell you. He burned prophecies. We'll actually look at that next week. They had a prophecy of Jeremiah. He sat there. Israel's not as cold as Minnesota, so they just had little, like, little fire pots you know, to keep things warm in the winter. He sat there in the winter, and they said, yeah, go ahead, read the prophecy from Jeremiah. And as they're reading it, he slices off three lines and drops it in the fire. And even his officials are going, ah, don't do that. It's a, you know, it's a prophecy. Don't do that. You know, he's just slicing it up and burning. He didn't care. He engaged in paganism. He, he raised taxes when they were financially strapped as a nation so he could have a nice house. Self-indulgent. Under his leadership, they do not respond to God. They don't turn from idolatry. They shed innocent blood. They're greedy, and they actually kept slaves of their own fellow countrymen. Wow. They look like the surrounding culture. Well, what do we learn from this? Notice he doesn't ask them to become Rechabites. Rather, verse 15, reform your ways, turn from other gods, and listen to the Lord your God. So for us today, I don't believe we need to reject all of culture, but we do need to repent and turn from false gods. We've got to listen to God. So where there are false gods and self-serving things, repent. Where there's greed, repent. But the main warning here, the big picture, where the culture moves away from biblical truth, we cannot follow. When Western culture said all is, all is hopeless and meaningless, so just get whatever pleasure you can, we say no, there's hope. When the, the culture says devaluing each person through whether through abortion or racism or euthanasia, or when the culture distorts issues of sexual identity, the church must hold to the truth. Martin Luther, the reformer, now I'm referring to in the 1500s, he said about his issues of his day, he says, I can profess Christ, but if I compromise right where my culture is pressuring me, I am failing to confess Christ. Right? In other words, I can say I'm a believer and talk about my, my Christian faith and justified by faith through grace, which he rediscovered. But if I'm compromising right where my culture is putting the pressure on, I'm not truly confessing as a servant of Jesus Christ, the lordship of Jesus Christ. So the second wrong response to God's holiness is compromise with culture. One final response to God's holiness, of course, is challenging culture. So notice verse 15 again. What is he saying to them? He says, turn from evil. Get the compromise out of your life. Whether sexual, racism, injustice. Then he says, reform your actions. Learn a new lifestyle. And then he says, do not follow other gods. Pure worship. So in other words, a life of discipleship involves three things. Right heart desires proper intellectual formation and a yielding to the Holy Spirit so the will can be formed, right? 
heart desires, the issue of compromise in your heart, I encourage you, look it straight in the eye. So let's say, you know, you may not be personally tempted by issues of sexual identity, right? But many of you probably feel the pressure to not talk about that at times. You see what I'm saying? Now, of course, there's times not to talk about it, right? But um, I have relatives transitioning, etc. There's times to talk, times not. But when we are tempted to downplay the truth of the gospel, when we should be sharing it, whatever dimension it might be, I encourage you, don't kind of be a, hide from that. Just look it in the eye before the Lord. Say, Lord, I am tempted to accommodate culture in whatever area it might be. Look it right in the eye. I'm tempted to fit in when I shouldn't. Take that and in prayer, look at eternity. Look at eternity. And ask yourself, what will I wish I had done as I sit in heaven? What will I wish I had decided as I contemplate the people I had around me during this life? Look eternity in the eye. I'm not talking about guilt trip. I'm saying this is perspective. When you look eternity in the eye, it changes what you prioritize and what you're afraid of. Judah had lost hope. 1 Peter 1.13 says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. I'll read it again. 1 Peter 1.13. This is, by the way, hope as a spiritual exercise. Hope as a spiritual exercise. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. I'm not putting my hope on having a little more money next year then. I'm not putting my hope on having everything working out just right in my relationships or career or whatever it might be. I'm putting my hope fully on what's gonna happen when Jesus returns. My hope is in that. And when my hope is in that, then when my culture says things are hopeless, I go, yeah, maybe humanly, but not with what I'm looking at. You know, I might be facing illness, but I'm looking at eternity. I might be facing persecution, but I'm looking at eternity. I might be facing trouble with my job, but I'm looking at eternity. And that's where my hope is, so I never lose hope. Uh, set your hope fully on the grace, the grace that will be revealed when Jesus Christ comes back. And when you do that, you have a resistance to conformity to culture. Because you're hoping on eternity. You're hoping on what really lasts and matters. Hallelujah. So that's the heart issue of compromise. Then there's the intellectual issue of compromise. The false gods. I've said this. You've been watching it online. I've said this a few times in the last few weeks. I'm feeling a growing sense. I'm going to continue to think with you, but I'm not going to think for you. I'm feeling a growing sense that I want to commission every one of you to look at the beliefs of the culture, to look at the things you face in the workplace, the neighborhood, your extended family, the thing, and to discern for yourself, we'll do it together, but to discern for yourself what is truth and what is lies and how am I going to respond to the lies. 
Because if I do all the work for you, then you're going to go, oh, I heard something really cool about that three weeks ago. I can't remember it. I don't have any illusions about how much you actually remember from a Sunday morning. I have no illusions about that. <laughs> so what can be affirmed, for example, the dignity and value of every human person, we agree with the culture there. Maybe we go a little beyond the culture, actually. God's delight in diversity of race and culture. Yes, right? God's creation of us as sexual beings for deep bonding. Absolutely. By the way, formation of family and children as well. Ha ha. Okay, we're going to add a little that maybe the culture's forgotten. The value of using your power to serve. Of course, we agree. What must be corrected? Confusion around the nature of God. Most people are not atheists these days. You know that, right? But most people have either a very nebulous life force that kind of started everything and doesn't have a morality or a grandfatherly God that just wants all the kids to have a good time. That's not our view of God. We need to help people see who God really is. Confusion around the nature of the human person, identity and sexuality, huge issues. Also brokenness in core family relationships, including abuse. These are our society, just it's normal now. I mean, uh, one of my daughters has had some great connections with uh, fellow high schoolers in the neighborhood, and the number of families, that, I mean, <laughs> I'll just say it. They meet me once and they think, oh, your dad is wonderful. That's really scary. I mean, I'm a nice guy, but that's like, that's all it takes. Their families are so fragmented and broken. To even, you know, what is family? That's a part of our witness. Brokenness in society, of course, including racism, sexism, greed, all these things, right? Think it through. What do we believe and why? What do you believe and why? And then by the Spirit, surrendering your will. Galatians 2.20 says, I'm crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Or maybe another good one would be, look at Romans 8. How do, we, how do you really change your will? You can't. But here's what you can do. Paul says in uh, Romans 8.13, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if... By the Spirit, by yielding to the Holy Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, a lot of people take verse 14 and they're waiting for mystical revelation. But what's he saying? If you're led by the Spirit of God, you're not sinning. That's what he's saying, right? And so he's saying, yield to the Holy Spirit. We need to have our will changed, but you cannot simply grit your teeth and be a holier Christian. It won't work. What you can do is yield to the power of the Holy Spirit and your will becomes transformed. So that you see what I'm saying? Heart, mind, and will then are transformed in this need to be uh, surrendered in challenging the culture. So the final response to God's holiness is challenging the culture. So again, the three responses to God's holiness, withdrawal from culture, compromise with culture, challenging the culture. Of course, I'm not calling us to be Amish. We're a university church. If anybody's called to address, challenge, and really bring healing to the culture, it is Sojourn Campus Church. It's our call. I'm actually temperamentally a Hutterite. I mean, like... My temperament, I could live alone in the woods with my family and be just fine, but that is not God's call. And so I've lived my life and will continue to live my life in the midst of the metropolitan area where God has placed me next to the university that I love, 
not compromising by God's grace, our call today, set apart your heart, think, and surrender to the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Stand with me. Jesus, we are so joyful to be together, Lord. We are so joyful to be your people and to be a sign of contradiction that life can be different, that life can be whole, that life can be meaningful, that we can be reconciled and live in relationship with people that are different from us in Christ. So Father, we ask that by your spirit you'd work transforming our souls, oh God. To stay in a place of prayer, I want to invite you right now as you stand before the Lord, just close your eyes, kind of get with the Lord. God's speaking to you two things. Some God may be speaking. There might be some compromise and God's convicting you. Just raise your hand quickly and I'll pray for you. There's compromise and you want to, you want to turn from that. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So Lord, in Jesus name, when we've compromised, we ask your cleansing your forgiveness. We also ask, help us think through and relearn a new way of life. Hallelujah. We want to walk in that entirely. So others of you, I believe as we're standing here, God's putting a growing desire in your heart to address the culture with love and truth. God's stirring something. I mean, everyone could raise their hand, but I'm not looking for that. But God's stirring your heart right now to really move in love and truth in some way. You might not know what it is yet, but raise your hand. We're going to pray. God's stirring you. You want to really address culture. You want to be one of those people that really knows you think, you do your homework, and you're ready. Lord, in Jesus' name, as we lift our hands to you, Lord, we say in Jesus' name, we're asking you to give us both strength in our soul sharp, clear, biblical thinking and the power of your spirit to swim against the tide, to be that trout going upstream, to be a witness to the reality of Christ, to a broken and needy world, to a broken and needy university students. Holy Spirit, we're asking that you would position us as individuals and Sojourn Campus Church as a body, position us in the harvest of these days. Position us with those who are open and hungry and need you. You know, those that are just not interested, that's great. But Lord, we say position us relationally with those who are ready to move forward. Both unbelievers who are ready to step in and, and newer believers that are ready to grow. Position us with them all summer and this fall, position us, we pray, that we could carry out your call on our lives. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We thank you for this. We trust you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. So, just want to remind you, I guess online, the, uh, the offering here locally and then online. And uh, remind guests to sign up online with your email if you want to be notified of any issues uh, with COVID. Uh, you know, if somebody is found to be positive, we won't reveal their name, but we would, you know, let you know so that we could take steps. Um, yeah. 
Hallelujah. So let's close with this. Lord, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and grant you peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.